0: To this show of Who Cares What's the Point? The podcast about the mind for people who think. Now, this is a very special edition of the show. Uh, I've produced this in partnership with the Division of Clinical Psychology of the British Psychological Society. Now, I was at their conference in January this year, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I listened to quite a few of the papers there, and I've picked out three which I think you would be interested in hearing about. So, let's get on with it. The first one, is entitled Male Professional Footballer's Experience of Mental Health Difficulties and Help Seeking. Now, this isn't something you'd initially think of, but in a highly rarefied atmosphere of professional athletes, and particularly with the controversies that have been emerging recently about how these athletes have been cared for or not so much cared for, but abused in their early years of training... It's really interesting to think about what mental health difficulties they may have, not just males, but um, everyone involved in professional athletics uh, and uh, high performance sports and how they seek help. So listen to my conversation with Dr. Susan Wood from the Universities of Coventry and Warwick and see what you think. So, Susan, tell me, why did you get involved in this area of research in the first place?
1: Um, So, I was combining two interests, really. So, I've um, grown up playing football. I started playing football when I was about five years old, and I still play it now, uh, in my old age. Um, And I was also fascinated with kind of um, psychology and and, and understanding and helping people to um, live a life that they want to live. Um, and I think something that's always been really important to me is helping people uh, have a voice and have their experiences heard and when um, I was following kind of some of the, the media and literature around mental health in football and obviously the, the more recent suicide of Gary Speed and Um, you know Paul Gascoigne's ups and downs and stuff I kind of felt that this was a population that hadn't had a chance to to have their their voices heard and had unmet needs really so Mm. I was really keen to explore that further.
0: Yeah Uh, and I guess one of the things that you've identified here is particularly males uh, in professional football that's who you've been looking at uh, in this but um, there's also the stigma I guess that you're uncovering here that that's in the literature around males coming forward with with mental health needs and being able to express that do you think that's particularly so in professional sport
1: yeah I mean I imagine it's it's even more extreme because in professional sport any sign of kind of weakness or vulnerability is a chance for an opposition to exploit you or for um uh, a t- someone from your team to get your position you know you're competing for selection um, and I actually think in, in sport and elite environments that probably goes beyond just males I think it's a, a, a something females will experience as well you know the, the level of competition is so high that kind of um any, any vulnerability can be seen as a weakness to be, to be taken advantage of or um, you, you know your, your sponsors or your uh, the, the owners of the football club might not want you if they think you can't perform um, so I think it's kind of hard for, for any sports person to come out about those kind of difficulties
0: Sure, so when, when people are experiencing this, it's um, something that we don't really have a good handle on around what these experiences might look like. So how did you go about exploring this?
1: Uh, so I kind of interviewed some professional footballers um, about their experiences of having mental health difficulties and trying to access help and support for them. Um, and I analysed the, the data using qualitative analysis, using um, interpretive phenomenological analysis, Uh, which really focuses on the individual's kind of personal meaning and how they've made sense of the experiences they've had. Um, So it's kind of really individual focused and how people with shared experiences have, have made sense of them and um, in that environment
0: sure and, and i guess one of the things about using that sort of qualitative methodology those sorts of techniques is around grabbing and being able let the, letting the stories of the individual to emerge but then also being able to look at those stories um all together as well and mm-hmm. saying well wh- wh- where are the commonalities where are the differences here between the people that you've interviewed
1: uh, absolutely and um I think also an important part of that is understanding what kind of preconceptions I kind of brought into the the study as well and uh, my views on football and and um, how that could shape how I analyzed it but obviously when when I went through the the transcripts of the interviews of, of the footballers there were there were themes that came out that were like across all, all of the participants that I interviewed um, so this idea that you couldn't show emotional weakness in a, a professional environment or the cost of that mm. um, uh, the idea that the environment was they they used a lot of um, words like brutal or battlefield you know the football world's cutthroat so it's kind of this real kind of life or death in a, a football environment and and how speaking about mental health and emotional difficulties um, could mean the death of their football career.
0: Mm, mm. And that was the dominant theme that came out this emotional weakness, this idea of emotional weakness?
1: Uh, so the, the dominant theme was about survival oh, okay. uh, and how they survived being a professional footballer in that world, uh, a world that's cutthroat, brutal, where you can be told at six years old that you're not good enough mm. um, and you're out, um, but also the survival of the experience of mental health difficulties. Um, So when the difficulties appeared, how did they try and cope with them? And a lot of them spoke about this um, bravado or stage character that they hid behind um, to kind of conceal their emotional vulnerabilities. Um, But that led them needing an outlet and they spoke about this kind of I guess maladaptive forms of escapism really. So women, gambling, drugs, partying, and things like that as a way to try and manage their experiences. But um, obviously also created problems for them as well. Hmm. Um, Another big theme that came across was how uh, transition out of football. So maybe when they retire or they're forced to stop because of injury or deselection had a big impact on, on their mental health. so one, one interview that stood out to me the most was um, uh, a guy had uh, a really bad tackle which he felt um, effectively murdered his his football career and from that tackle he, his de- career, uh, career and playing levels declined um, and uh, when I interviewed him several years on he, he's kind of t- had this murderous rage really of, of wanting revenge for that um, and um, uh, I guess the the attack that he felt from from that tackle, and how, how hard it was for him to get over that and adjust adjust to living in the real world you know
0: yeah, yeah yeah so yeah I mean I guess what you're talking about here is a really profound experience over a long period of time well past when they were still professionally active mm. so and I guess that brings me on to my my next point is that you know what who cares why why should we what What's the point of this research you know what, what does this tell us what are the implications here
1: mm, I, I mean I think the the football world as a whole um <laughs> Who cares is a really interesting point because sometimes actually I think, well, who does care in the football world? Because there's, there's so many other um, stakeholders and interests and competing interests going on. There's the financial aspect, the, you know, the commercial aspect. There's so many people who enter the footballing profession. It's probably the highest um, job rejection rate if, if you think about how, it's, how it plays out that um, actually, oh, you know, if Johnny's struggling, well, we can get someone else. You know, we don't care. Um, but. Who should care? Um, mm. I'd, you know, I'd like to hope, hope, think that academies can maybe start thinking more about um, the personal and emotional development of the young players that come through. So, you know, football shifted. So at the start, it was all about football skills and playing. Now they've added in strength and conditioning. You know that, and that's becoming more of a role. And I think over the next few few years, what what would be good for the sport is if that emotional and personal development role comes in as well. Mm. Um,
0: as you're talking, I guess I'm thinking about, you know, that commoditization mm-hmm. of the person. You know, they are a unit and you just mentioned then that they could be interchangeable. You know, if they're not going well, then you can just substitute somebody else in. It's a very competitive environment. So I guess um, my thoughts are around that, you know, what you're, what you're talking about is a much broader definition and um, conceptualization of a footballer as a person. Mm-hmm. Rather than just a commodity that comes into a team, does their job, and leaves.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the, one of the quotes that stands out was, um, this is shortened, I guess, for for, for the sake. But he spoke about how he felt from, like feeling like he was a golden nugget. Um, So something that everyone wanted a piece of, you know, that it was really valuable to the team, um, to a dead duck and uh, this idea of being kind of worthless and dispensable. Um, And that was uh, an example of how a footballer felt when an injury happened and he was out of the the team and and stuff for about a year. Um, You know, he, he was no longer important. He was no longer valued from his, you know, from his experience. And he classed himself as... Uh, disabled as a, non, a non-producer in, in that team mm. um, and I think when when the football world um, there's so much about this kind of team identity and being with the lads and performing as a, a group when they're not able to be part of that either because of injury or deselection and things like that then I think it reveals a more fragile self-identity underneath they don't really know where they fit then. <laughs>
0: And is that something you're looking at now? Is that how does the individual fit into that team identity? What's next for you? Where's this going for you?
1: Um, I mean, I'm, I'm finding my feet as a, a fairly newly qualified psychologist at the moment, but um, I certainly have. Um, I'm really passionate, actually, for me. It's about educating um, and supporting the younger um, footballers and, and coaches in, in helping people with that personal development and understanding the impact that this can have on on people, um, there there are there, there's lots of research out there on identity and sport and uh, athlete identity, and I imagine that will, will keep keep on going. But um, I, I'd be surprised if you could look at mental health in a sporting environment and identity not have a a, a role in that. Hmm. I mean, I guess the, I mean there's some interesting overlaps with um the military literature um and how uh service servicemen and and women experience that transition of coming out of the military environment and having to um adjust to civilian life and uh it was very similar actually in the language that footballers used um so kind of moving from the battlefield which is how they experience the football world uh to living in the real world and um, how some of them really struggled to create a new sense of self to, to survive in that world um, and it was really interesting how uh, kind of choice and readiness for that transition played a big part of how they adapted um, as well as um, so some, some of the footballers were able to use their skills i guess of being in teams in their next job so they kind of worked in a business but their the the lads were their colleagues you know and they adapted that way whereas those who uh, ended up in more isolated roles either working in individual roles or like as a fitness instructor and that really missed that camaraderie um so i think there's a lot to be learned actually from kind of how uh, the the military kind of have a lot of support groups and get-togethers and there's a real kind of identity that continues afterwards and and that could probably help footballers as well <laughs>
0: Next up from the Division of Clinical Psychology conference, I'm speaking with Dr. Catherine Rhymes from the South London and Morsley NHS Foundation Trust and King's College London. Now, our conversation is about her paper, along with her colleagues, on the factors associated with suicide attempts, ideation, and future risk in lesbian, gay, and bisexual youth from the Youth Chances Study. Now, again, we've been hearing a lot about this in the media recently around the increased risk of suicide for people in these communities. Have a listen to the conversation I have with Catherine and see what's changed and what's different when we think about the risk for suicide in these communities.
2: Yeah, I became interested in this research when I heard about the really worryingly high rates of suicidality in um, young people who identify as lesbian, gay or bisexual. It was really worrying me that so many, the risk was just so much elevated in these young people.
0: And so compared to youth who don't identify them, uh, uh, themselves as lesbian, gay or bisexual, what, what, what's the difference here?
2: It's several times elevated. So, I mean, it, it depends from study to study, but it's it often could be around three or four times the
0: rates of um, suicidality. Okay. Um, and so how did you go about trying to investigate um, what the rates were, if that's what you were trying to do?
2: Well, we were, we were not so much focusing on the rates. I then wanted to, to understand why this might be Um, so we did look um, at the rates in our study so we decided to get a really large sample of young adults who identified as um, lesbian go bisexual so they were 16 to 25 year olds and mainly from England Um, and there were over 3,000 of them and we asked them a whole range of um, questions on an online survey and we wanted to look at what kind of factors might be associated with suicidality in these young people and we looked at three different types Types of suicidality. So we looked at had they ever tried to take their life, um, how much suicidal thoughts or ideation they'd had in the last year, and also the, how they rated the likelihood that they would um, take their own life in the future. And so we then looked at lots of different factors that might be associated with those. Suicide outcomes.
0: Mm, and that's quite a large number you're talking about. Is that something that's been done before?
2: Um, not in a UK sample, no, that's a really large sample, and um, particularly in the UK. But but for any sample looking at suicidality, you know that over 3,000 is a really good number. Mm. Um, so, yeah, when we did find very high rates, so we found that um, about 14% of them had tried to take their life in the past, which is much, much higher than you'd find in heterosexual young people. Uh, 45% of them reported having suicidal thoughts in the last year. And about 10% thought that uh, a future suicide attempt was likely. So mm. really worryingly high levels. Mm. Uh,
0: and what are the sorts of psychological and social factors that seem to be associated with those high rates?
2: So what we looked at were both general factors that we knew were associated with suicidality in the general population and then LGB-specific factors. And we found that all the L- the general factors that have been found before in community were similar so that females were more suicidal, people with um, less social support um, people with a history of anxiety and depression, people who had been um, abused or experienced violence or had sexual abuse at a young age all of those things were risk factors but we were particularly interested in looking at the factors that were specific to um, lesbian gay and bisexual people as well and we found a whole range of factors so um, consistent with other studies we found that bisexual um, young people were even at even greater risk than lesbian and gay people we also found out that those who identified as LGBT at a younger age or who'd come out at a younger age were actually at greater risk so this um, sometimes can seem counterintuitive because often you think um that coming out is good um that you know the more self-confident people come out younger um, and you know nowadays people are encouraged to come out at young age mm. but i think um, we found that if they came out below the age of 16 they had um, significantly higher rates of suicidality. and it could be that even though in some ways there are good things about coming out you do then expose yourself mm. to stigma and discrimination and particular negative reactions um, and obviously if people are coming out at a very young age they have may not have developed their coping strategies they're still in kind of Developing their sense of identity, Mm. Um, and it may be that there are difficulties at coming out younger at a younger age as well. So, we need to think very carefully when we're supporting young people about coming out
0: Mm, for those reasons. And particularly, you know, when people are under sixteen, of course, they're most likely to be in a school environment. Yes. And how how was that linked? Did you did you find much there?
2: Yeah. No. Thank you for bringing that up because this is one of the important aspects of this study that hadn't really been highlighted before, that there were school factors that were important. So, if People said that there um, there was. Um, kind of anti lgbq stigma or negative experiences around those issues, and staff at schools didn't teach up, talk up, so the teachers didn't speak out against homophobia and biphobia. That was associated with increased risk of suicidality. Um, and also, if um, school lessons presented um, sexual orientation issues in a negative way, that was also associated with increased suicidality in the young person. So, schools do have a really important part to play here.
0: Mm. Mm. Uh, and how about families was the the did, did was that talked about much in, in, in yeah. the survey?
2: Yeah, that's another really good point. So we also asked the young people about how people reacted when they came out. And we found that those who said that their um, family reacted in a negative way um, were at increased risk of suicidality. And that could be the mother or the father, but also siblings as well, and also friends. So a negative reaction from the people that you came out to um, did was associated with more suicidality, mm.
0: And I guess, you know, thinking about, you know, that age group, 16 to 25, often they're transitioning into a work life as yes, well. Yes. Uh, and so did anything come out around how that impacted, you know, the employer-employee relationship or the workplace relationships? Too?
2: We didn't look at that in this study. And that was because a lot of them were still in full-time education. Mm. And so we didn't have enough numbers to look at work as well. But we did just um, look at these more general factors like um, victimization in general. We found that those those victimization experiences like being outed or having verbal abuse were associated with more suicidality but in particular the more serious um, aspects, so some people have been blackmailed and um, who had more serious crime like physical assault, so the more serious the victimisation the higher the association
0: with suicidality mm. So Catherine wh- uh, why should we care about this? How, how is this useful for us? Where, where, where does this go?
2: Well I think it is very important because I think nowadays there is a lot of assumption that things are getting so much better for LGBTQ young people and we can see here that they may be getting better but they still can be quite bad for some not for everybody but these are really quite high rates you know about half of them had had suicidal thoughts in the last year so despite the fact that we've now got gay marriage in the UK um, or um same-sex marriage um, and that there are attempts to improve things in schools and to support young people, we've still got a really long way to go Um, so as you know this is a clinical psychology conference and I'd really urge um, clinical psychologists and other health professionals and education professionals to really look out for LGBTQ young people, they may not be talking about their suicidality uh, risk but it's important to ask them about it, Um, there's no evidence that asking people about suicide thoughts increases the risk that they actually act on them. Um, so it is really important we ask and then provide support if they are experiencing those thoughts. Whoever you are, so siblings, friends, um, parents, school teachers, health professionals, do just look out for these young people. They're at the start of their life and the input and support you provide could have a really important effect on them.
0: Thinking about how to deal with mental health challenges. Often we may turn to our primary care practitioner or we may be referred to a program or be offered medication, uh, which we may not be comfortable with going to straight away. So there may be a gap at the community level where people can talk about these things or get some education around some of these issues at a really basic, fundamental and accessible level one of those ways of thinking about life, its problems and how we deal with them is through acceptance and commitment therapy. Listen to my conversation with Jess Cartwright talking about an early intervention psychoeducation program that she has been running and studying for a wee while along with her colleagues in Wales.
3: I did it, the research about a year ago. I was an assistant psychologist at the time working in Swansea, ABMU Health Board. And the department I worked for was a tier, tier zero service called the Live and Life Well Programme. And what I mean by this is it's um, a service which is prior to primary care, so prior to GP referral for anyone. Um, we were currently offering stress control, which is a well-known psychoeducational course By Jim White. And we had recently just started introducing Activate Your Life, which was a psychoeducational course developed by Neil Frood based on acceptance and commitment therapy. We didn't have any evidence for this course. Um, It was a new development, which Neil had um, developed himself. There's a lot of evidence for ACT, um, which is why you know the intervention was developed but not necessarily for the course so we wanted to ensure really that what we were offering in the health board was effective
0: Mm. so just to explain a couple of things acceptance and commitment therapy is often known as ACT and I guess when you're saying who this was for it was for people who didn't necessarily have any experience of symptoms in their lives but they were somehow drawn towards this and wanted to kind of improve their way of being or their well-being or or, um, what was going on in their lives in some way
3: yeah it's a course that is delivered for absolutely anyone um we it's open access so anyone in the community is able to attend and whether they identify themselves as having symptoms or difficulties or whether they don't um anyone's able to come so the way then we advertise the course is um through posters and just any community settings ensuring that all health professionals are are aware and that's physical health as well as mental health professions. GPs was probably one of our main go-tos. But again, like you said whether people identify themselves as having difficulties or not, it it didn't matter. It was a course for absolutely anyone.
0: Sure. So tell me what you did. So the course was running, I I heard you speak earlier on, um, over four sessions. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, tell us what you did and and how you, um, what measurements were you taking of of people? Okay,
3: so the course was... um, It was being run in community venues across the health board, which is three regions, Swansea, Neathport, Talbot, and Bridgend. So the course is just a rolling programme throughout the year. And as I said, it's open access, and people don't necessarily have to even book on. They can just turn up to the course. So it's a four-session course, two hours per week. And as one finished perhaps in Swansea, the next one then would start in Neathport, Talbot, and then Bridgend. And they were... They were on in the mornings, afternoons and evenings as well to try and make it as accessible as possible. So to evaluate the course, what we did is take pre and post measures. We asked individuals on arrival in week one to complete a booklet of questionnaires. And then the same booklet of questionnaires was given in week four. The way that we captured pre and post measures, because all measures and information provided was completely anonymous and confidential, So we just asked individuals to give initials and last three digits of a telephone number. And this allowed us to match up the questionnaires completed in Session 1 and Session 4. So we had a variety of measures used. Um, We used the patient health questionnaire, the PHQ. We used the uh, eight-item version. It's generally most commonly known for the PHQ 9, but we removed the statement which asked about risk we felt it was unethical to gather that really when we couldn't do anything with that information we didn't know who was telling us
0: what sure and so what is the the phq what's that designed to measure
3: it's a measure of depression yeah that's generally used um it's there's a lot of research out there on it i know it's quite commonly used in iapt um and i think it's starting to be more used in Wales now as well particularly because it's um you can um it's free of copyright we could adapt it for our services sure. as well and the, IAPS, like the way it looked
0: j- just for the audience cuz they don't necessarily so, yeah. get all the the acronyms is the improving access to psychological therapies program in England which, yes. in England, which is about trying to intervene relatively early in a low key way Yeah. Um, yeah yeah so yeah, yeah, okay.
3: That was one of the measures. Uh-huh. Yeah. We also had a measure for anxiety mm-hmm. um which was called the GAD7 it's a generalized anxiety disorder 7-item hmm. measure. We took a rating for self-esteem which was the Rosenberg self-esteem scale. We had a single item Just asking the audience really about their general life satisfaction. It was a single item well-being measure, and this was on a 10-point scale. We also had, um, as ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy is a mindfulness-based therapy, we wanted to have a measure for mindfulness to capture Mm. that aspect. Mm. So we used the Mindfulness Scale, um, Self-Efficacy Scale, which is... I can't remember the original version, how many items is it? it's 22 or 27 and we condensed it down though to 13 items.
0: Sure, because you didn't want to make this completely onerous for everybody who was in, yeah, involved in the Yeah.
3: we were program, aware right? that was, a, yeah. you know, it's quite a lot of measures and that's because, you know, it's the first time we were evaluating Activate Your Life, we wanted to get really, a, I guess, a variety of different measures to see what components Activate Your Life was targeting, where sure. it was helping individuals. So it was a variety but we also understood that that could be quite overwhelming, particularly, yeah. you know, people were walking in it's their first session we're asking them to fill in questionnaires
0: yeah.
3: it wasn't mandatory it was voluntary and they were all told that so they didn't have to if they didn't feel
0: comfortable sure. fill them in so before we go on to kind of like what you found out can you briefly describe what was being covered in these sessions
3: yeah of course so there's four sessions um, the first session was titled you are not your mind and this is all about introducing the idea that we are in control of our actions and not our mind so it gives loads of the course has a lot of um activities that um people don't necessarily you know, they can just do them sitting in their chair, they don't they're not talking or anything. And um a lot of the slides would show how our mind jumps to conclusions or perhaps we notice the worst things in situation um or it's always perhaps even when it jumps to conclusions, these aren't always right mm-hmm. the conclusions and we you know, it's fun ways to really to demonstrate that. And then we to try and get the idea across that then Although our mind is telling us one thing, we don't necessarily necessarily have to do that thing. So if it's telling us don't get on the bus, you know, you might not you might have a panic attack or you're not gonna cope. You can if you still really want to, if it's something that you value and want to do, get on that bus. And we start to just sort of teasing apart us and our mind. <laughs> the second session then is about facing up to life and this is really where that acceptance element of acceptance and commitment therapy comes in so we start introducing metaphors and approaches to really take on this acceptance approach in our life so a lot of the time it's accepting things that perhaps we don't necessarily want but we can't do much about Mm -hmm. and we talk about how a lot of the time we try and do things about those things that we don't want we try fighting it off try fixing it we try avoiding it but a lot of the time although they're the natural strategies to use they're not always the most helpful Mm. the third session then is about being mindful and this is where we introduce although mindfulness is introduced i guess throughout the four weeks it's predominantly um the main topic in session three and we do some in-house practices as well so people are just sitting in their chair and if they want to join in or if they don't it's up to them we introduce those so some mindfulness breathing, um, the body scan. And we do another um which is quite an act um exercise of is um floating leaves on a moving stream and that's all about trying to sort of I guess see our thoughts from another perspective, just watching our thoughts go by, just letting them be there. And the final session then is titled Living Wisely and Living Well and this is the commitment aspect of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. So that commitment then to live by our values, to live a life in the way that we want to, perhaps not the way our mind is telling us to or holding us back from doing. Mm. So we introduced then ways to take this acceptance approach and also then, I guess have value-based actions hmm. as well
0: so people are going through these four sessions they can mm-hmm. join in at any point of those yes, four sessions can, yeah. and they have these take-home activities as well that they're doing uh, what did you find were the main differences for, uh, with people who had kind of joined uh, at session one uh, compared to session four
3: so as i i went through the um, measures and um, we did a statistic Statistical, ooh, statistical analysis um, looking at the pre and post measures we found a decrease in um, the depression scores this was highly significant with a high high effect size, so which is really promising. Basically, saying that you know the the impact, I guess, from of activate your life from week one to four is likely to have a benefit then to people's yeah. um, depressed depressive symptoms or their difficulties related to depression. Mm. We found a decrease in anxiety. Again, this was significant and high um, high effect size. And all the other measures as well, we had um, really positive results. So there was an increase in self-esteem, mm. an increase in general life satisfaction, mm. self-efficacy views and mindfulness skills had improved. And uh, another measure I don't think I mentioned earlier is the AAQ too, which is acceptance and action questionnaire. It's an act-based questionnaire really. And that had also improved so people were um I guess reporting to be more psychologically sort of flexible, so less I guess rigid in their ways of um thinking perhaps, um more more likely to take on this acceptance approach mm. really that we had introduced in Activate Your Life. So mm. some really, really um big benefits I guess of attending the four week course. We also took some qualitative analysis as well. So they were um just asked to fill in a questionnaire really and what they liked and perhaps improvements and just any comments that they had. And, you know, some of the quotes we had were really, really inspiring and brilliant showing the effect really the four week course had.
0: Can you think of an example?
3: Yeah, so I think a lot of people were able to show that they'd really taken on board the messages of ACT. So some people would say things such as, no longer is my mind in control of my life. Um, I recognise now that, yes, my mind is influential, but I don't have to listen to everything it says. Um, A lot of people comment on the mindfulness exercises and it's something that they've really taken on board. Mm. There was, I guess... People just really captured a lot of different elements of the course. Another thing that was quite um, apparent as well is the fact that people were walking into a room and seeing so many other people there for the same reason as them or, you know, all come to this course. And that was a really big thing, I think, as well. You know, there's loads of other people in here. I'm not alone in um, whatever I'm going through right now. And I think that's something that people can really take away from that.
0: Mm. Now, you, as you said, you you picked up some fairly big effects in this study, um, and you know there are some reasons as to why that might happen. Partly, it's you'd hope it's the course. There may be some yeah. other things that were going on in their life as well that we we don't know about. But I'm really interested in what you think the point of this is. Well, wh- who should care about this? Where where does this lead us? Mm-hmm. Something like this intervention, for sessions, can produce such a big impact.
3: I think it's I think it's, it's such a powerful, huge intervention. Really, I think. I don't know if it's a bit ambitious, but I think everyone should care because this is something that is community based. It is an open access course for absolutely anyone. A lot of individuals who are hoping to receive some help or support from difficulties that they're experiencing, one of their critics, really, of the, the mental health services is the waiting lists. They're just you know, we know that we have a problem with the mental health services sometimes in access and therapy. Primary care waiting lists can be years long. So we need something that is there and then for individuals to attend. So this course, which is down their local YMCA or in the local community hall, is on their doorstep. It's easily, it's, it's easily accessible. It's at different times of the day throughout the year. They don't have to go and see a doctor to attend. They don't have to have be given a diagnosis which a lot of services now these days you have to meet a certain criteria to be able to get the help this is just for absolutely anyone and what we're trying to do is take on that preventative approach really in order to prevent people from having to access um, higher tiered services and it's something that you know the NHS services pushing the government are pushing for prudent healthcare approaches so doing what we can as effective as we can but also with minimal resources and I think this course is an example of that really we're not using many resources at all Um, and what we are we're using it as a you know a fairly cheap price but also we're able to target so many people at once so we've got that you know the high volume there as well so I think it's something that professionals should definitely care about and um, you know because I think we're answering a lot of the concerns that the community have about accessing Um, help and support but i think it's something that the community should care about as well it's something that perhaps if they come onto the course they should be sharing their experience about it they should be telling people about it because you can find out this course about this course from absolutely anyone and the feedback that we got is this night needs to be advertised better and that's a limitation we had i guess and again it comes down to resources um funding issues. so we did everything that we could really we were going out just putting posters places arranging meetings with places um with people um trying to get it on websites you know community websites council websites um but i think we also need to rely on the community as well really to help us get that message out there so i think you know it's such a big a big topic really that i think most people should really care about
0: great (laughs) I'll probably stop it there but is there anything that you um, want to add on to that or anything that we haven't covered yet
3: I think an important note as well is um, I think GPs really struggle sometimes you know knowing where to signpost individuals for help we know that so many people go to see their GP with difficulties um, perhaps that they might call depression or anxiety and GPs can be stuck sometimes with what to do because they know the waiting list is so long they want people to have help there and then so they might be prescribing antidepressants and we know the evidence for antidepressants isn't necessarily for that milder category um, it's for the more moderate that's I like can you know, I sort of do empathise with the GPs. If they haven't got another option, they don't want a person to walk away empty-handed. The effects that we actually found, the effect sizes would um in some cases the same or bigger than antidepressants. Um, so we really want to push that message as this is an alternative treatment option. And it's four weeks, so even if, you know, someone does the course and then goes back to their GP if they still need another um intervention i think that'd be fine but i think we should push the message across that there's something out there now that you know um individuals can turn to as an alternative intervention
0: Thanks so much for joining me for this show. Again, many thanks to the Division of Clinical Psychology for partnering in the production of this show. Um, Please rate and review us on iTunes if that's the way you're listening to to us. That really helps. And even subscribe if you you like what you've heard. There's plenty of back shows for you to listen to in the catalogue, about 40 of them if this is the first time you've heard us. You can email me at contact at who com. Find us on Facebook, on Twitter, at WCWTP. And I am Saab Johal, at Saab on Twitter, uh, your host and producer of this show. Thanks again for joining us. Really hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget. Who cares? What's the point?